this episode, I'm joined once again by Kevin Hart to discuss his recently released book, Maurice Blanchot on Poetry and Narrative, Ethics of the Image. I'd like to say a big thank you to all my paying patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. And if you'd like to support the podcast and keep everything running, please find links in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy. So, Kevin Hart, thanks once again for joining us on Hermetics Podcast. My pleasure. We, once again, are going to be discussing the work of Maurice Blanchot from your recently published book, Maurice Blanchot on Poetry and Narrative, Ethics of the Image, uh, which was published by Bloomsbury this year, 2023, who were kind enough to send me uh, a copy for free. So thanks very much to Bloomsbury. Uh, This is a book, um, as people would imagine, on the work of Maurice Blanchot. But it uh, tackles poetry. Uh, There's a couple of names that I'm going to mispronounce because I'm I'm not very good at pronunciations. But Malam, Hodelin, Simone Vey, um, alongside discussions on friendship, community, and um, also on uh, on being Jewish is another another section. So the book is, and of course narrative and poetry generally, um, but the book is surprisingly eclectic, but equally. Uh, there's probably going to be a fair amount of overlap from our last conversation because that is the nature of Blanchot, of if we ever got to a point where we say, um, and obviously I've been doing more and more reading of Blanchot and become a little bit of, of an obsession of my own, uh, I think if if uh, anyone ever said, you know what, I've worked Blanchot out, I want to meet that. I want to meet that person. So this this mixture, this mixture, and inter, interlocking with the previous conversation is is unavoidable. Um, but I think I, if I remember right, I read in the introduction of the book that you said um, after your first book on Blanchot, I think the Dark Gaze was your first book on Blanchot. That's right. That you said that maybe that you, you you sort of didn't know where to go, and you weren't thinking there would ever be something more to write about Blanchot, and yet here we are. So. How come there was yeah. more to write about Blanchot? Well, that's a, that's a good question. When I finished The Dark Gaze, I thought, that that's it. That's my engagement with Maurice Blanchot. And then um, he died. And I, w- I was very sad about that and reread some things by him. But also there were various conferences and special numbers of journals devoted to him. And I was asked to write things for him, which I did as, I suppose, an act of mourning. And that reignited my interest, and there were more things that kept coming out. The, the first book was really to do with the, the nature of the sacred, as Blanchot is concerned with it. And I was concerned with his um, attitude toward Christianity uh, in that book. Uh, but in the second one, I paid a lot more attention to uh, he, what he has to say about the Jews. Mm. So it, it varies quite a bit in that way. Mm. And you have another book arriving soon right on another book on Blanchot I believe no not on Blanchot later this year that comes out the book of my Gifford lectures called Ah. Lands of Likeness which is on modern poetry Mm. okay okay so uh, well maybe I'll ask you at the end if there's going to be more Blanchot but we'll see but where I want to begin is uh, it is something we touched upon at the beginning of the last episode regarding Blanchot's biography Um, and you mentioned then that Blanchot has has when he's very 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 young has this strange vision of an absence which then leads him to be he had never waver from this atheistic acknowledgement of some mystical absence now we didn't really acknowledge it then and you're you're a scholar of theology that and it's something you approach in the beginning of your book which is 
Does to call Blanchot an atheist, I mean, it's correct, but it's also incorrect because he's not, you know, he's not tackling Anselm's ontological argument. He's not sitting there with Christopher Hitchens debating whether or not, you know, uh, God exists. It's not, this is not really his type of athe- atheism. So how would you, how would you describe it? Yes. Well, when he was a little boy of seven or eight, he had that strange experience um, of the complete absence of God. Uh, that there, there was no a divine presence at all. Um, but later, as he grew up, he started to think about why it is that people do believe in God. And he came to a very unusual conclusion, which marks him out as a very, a very um, singular kind of atheist. He said that the idea of God derives from a prior notion of unity or the one. Mm. So we believe in one God, because we have this prior philosophical notion of the one or unity. And a great deal of his work, it seems to me, is a matter of thinking what happens if we can discharge the notion of unity or the one. We get rid of God, he thinks. Uh, he's a very consequent atheist. We, we completely have nothing left of God. But we also have nothing left of the self. We have nothing left of the notion of the book as a unity, nothing of the subject, uh, the human subject, and so on and so forth. He's very thoroughgoing, and he's pre- prepared to entertain a world which has no ultimate grounding in unity or the one. So he's a, a, a negative Eckhartian. He wouldn't get on well with Meister Eckhart. Well, it's funny because uh, Eckhart, to the extent to which he's concerned with apophatic or negative theology, uh, namely that we can't talk about God in in positive predicates or in negative predicates, um, he thinks that all of those people were onto something important, but it wasn't about God. It was about what he calls the outside or the neutral Mm. or the impossible, which is has no unity to it, and which disrupts every kind of unity that we think we encounter in this life. Is this pathic? You know, is it? Is it a? Is it a? If there's no self, is it sort of a giving oneself over to something, letting letting something just take you for a ride? I mean, I'm thinking in this language that you're talking about in terms of you know, I mentioned Eckhart because Eckhart often talks about the fragmentary and the unity and. This, right. this return to oneness. Once you've removed that, it's it's sort of like um, the discussions of apathetic theology, which we spoke about last time, like, for instance, the cloud of unknowing. But instead of accepting perhaps that when you sit in the cloud of unknowing, something's going to happen, you just keep sitting in the cloud of unknowing. Right. Um, it's very interesting. When you when you started to speak, you, you went into the passive, and that's exactly what Blanchot does as well. <laughs> but he affirms um, a passivity that when you start to write, you may start with the idea of a secure ego. But once you start to write, that the security of the ego is abolished, and we're deflected from a first-person singular nominative I to the third person, a he or a she or an it even. Mm. Um, There's something interesting also about this notion of passivity. Um, It comes up in Blanchot, in Levinas, in Derrida, and in many others of that period. And I have the feeling that it's some kind of inexplicable resurgence of aspects of French quietism in the late 17th 
early 18th century, where where one gave over one's I, one's ego, one's self-love to God, and God took over the whole mm. person. And you, you, your, your own self, your own ego investments were completely deflected. Now, obviously, Blanchot and uh, not even Levinas uh, and Derrida would not have any of that. But nonetheless, there is something, a kind of ghostly double of quietism that comes up in that period of thought. And Blanchot is a very interesting person to explore that idea in. So Blanchot is like a sort of atheistic Quaker, sat in a room well, with his arms uh, out, waiting for not the spirit, but waiting for the outside. Well, the outside comes. I mean, you don't even have to wait for it that long. As soon as you pick up a pen, according to Blanchot, or put your fingers on the keyboard, it starts to impinge. I mean, it's getting complicated. I'm going to throw something even more complicated, and that seems Heideggerian to me, the ready at, yeah, the ready was... at hand. Okay. Blanchot uh, read um, Being and Time, uh, more or less, probably a year or so after it came out, Levinas back to France with a mm. copy and sat down with Blanchot and taught him how to read it. <laughs> and Blanchot wrote in his late 70s that it was an intellectual shock that he'd never recovered from. And he also, I think, was highly attentive early on to Husserl, mm. the great phenomenologist. And so we see a kind of um, Blanchot sitting on the margins of phenomenology where phenomenologists like Husserl and, and Heidegger were concerned to see um, what happens when things enter into the light, how phenomena appear. Mm -hmm. Blanchot changed the question, and he was much more interested in the question, how can we discover the obscure, mm -hmm. namely the outside, the impossible, the neutral? So you're quite right. There's a lot of Heidegger that goes on in there. But he, he tries to adjust Heidegger. He doesn't go along with the whole program. Yeah, maybe there's something. There's still a there's still a clear self. I think in Heidegger, there's this very often a uh, a march, a, uh, a teleology, maybe. Um, but I think about Heidegger and what you said about the notion of trying to find the obscure. I mean, Heidegger would say that we reveal things in the world. I guess the problem for Blanchot is who is the we who is doing the revealing and what is you know the revealed yeah. reveals it reveals itself in a very strange paradox, perhaps. Sure. That opens up a whole bunch of interesting questions. I mean, one of the things he, he clearly liked about Heidegger is that Heidegger moves in philosophy from the I, the subject, um, to a Dasein, mm -hmm. which, as uh, Jean-Yves Lacoste beautifully says in the book, is all open doors and windows. I mean, Dasein is a structure, mm. not a substantive self. But even that in Blanchot's later work in the late 1960s, moves from anything like an individual I to a notion of community. So he goes strongly in the direction of intersubjectivity, but it's not an intersubjectivity that is based upon a coherent substantive subject. Mm. Let's draw in poetry. Let's draw in poetry, because yes. this is the two pillars of your book, Poetry and Narrative. Poetry is generally understood. I mean, people people say, so many people in their own words, ironically, I guess, say that poetry is is the form of writing which um, you know gets closest to to moving, trying to you know closest to experience, closest to adhering to that thing which is which is of the out, of 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 the outside. I think it's uh, 
T.S. Eliot, where he's once interrogated by by someone who's read his poetry since about, you know, that one of his lines is, a tiger sat on a rug, and, and a woman says, what did you mean by a tiger sat on the rug? And he says, I meant there was a tiger sat on the rug. You know, right, so this right, notion right. that poetry is doing something more than language by adhering to something that's from the outside and doesn't veer all over the place. I'm doing a very haphazard job. What is poetry? And what is poetry for Blanchot? It's probably the two best ways to begin this. Right. Well, he is a great admirer of poetry, uh, particularly um, the great German uh, romantic poet uh, Hudelin, uh, the great French poet René Char, but many others come into his, his work with huge admiration. And he does follow from the Heidegger of the late 1930s and 1940s with his interest in poetry, of reading poetry not as a literary critic would do, but how a thinker would do, someone attuned to the thought of being. Poetry, he thinks, is something that happens when we respond to the outside, when we respond to the um, to the neutral. Now, we can't put that strictly into words. We can't report it because we're always deflected from it. It doesn't come as a kind of revelation to us that can be written down. But you respond to it in allowing one's own first-person singular I to be deflected. Mm -hmm. So the ideas that you bring to the page, as it were, of your own, get put aside or deflected, and the poem, as you're writing it, takes over. Mm. Now, this is very interesting. You use the word experience. Some people think of poetry as you have an experience, and then you come home and you write it out. <laughs> now, um, this, this idea doesn't pass much muster. But Blanchot thinks that poetry is experience itself, mm -hmm. which is a much more subtle and interesting idea. And what he has in mind, I take it, because there's the French word experience, just as we have experience, is the word experience goes back to the Greek word, which means peril or danger. So one has experience for the Greeks when one reaches the limits of the polis and the god no longer protects you. You're on your own. And peril is, of course, when you put yourself in danger. Now, for Blanchot, when we write a poem, you are exposing yourself to the danger of losing selfhood, mm. losing your familiar sense of yourself as a subject, with all that implies. So there is a kind of sacrificial aspect to it. And so, in a funny way, in writing a poem, you get experience at its most um, potent, its most acute. And this goes back to his um, the eye of Orpheus. So the right. peril, the peril is, the peril isn't in the looking back and looking at where you've come from and the the journey and the treacher treacherous nature of how far you've come. The peril is, don't look back. Yes, I mean he goes back to that great origin of, of, of poetry. Orpheus is the primal poet, and Orpheus, as we all know, um, uh, manages to to get Eurydice back in a sense. Um, but on the condition that he doesn't turn back and look at her. And so as he's getting up towards um, the light, he looks back and sees her, and she, of course, vanishes. She's reclaimed by the gods of the dead. 
And the point I take it that Blanchot is making is that the poet, when writing the poem, if he or she looks back to the inspiration of the poem, it's lost. And the poem um, is fragmented. It's disseminated. And this is something he approves of. It's not as though it becomes a failed work. He tends to think of failure more as a kind of attempt to find closure and unity and oneness. Mm -hmm. But the kind of literature he particularly likes has got this openness to the outside where um, a wholeness has been lost. The duty of the poet then is to remain passive. At least to acknowledge that when one starts to write, you're no longer in control. You don't have the power. You, be, you become powerless, in a sense. And this is, in one sense, is a very strange idea, because we think of poetry as self-expression often mm. after the Romantics. He doesn't think of it in that way at all. He thinks of it as expression, perhaps, but not having the self directing it. Rather, it's the act of writing which directs the poem or the story or the narrative. And every writer, I think, who's ever lived has had this experience that you think, aha, I have a great idea for a poem or a story or a novel. And you sit down and after the first few minutes, you find that the thing has got a life of its own and you can't really control the characters or the sentiments. And many poets will testify that at the end of a poem, one's surprised. And you think, is that what I think? And in a sense, the answer is going to be no, because there's something new. There's been an experience going on, and you've learned something about yourself. Well, Blanchot would question that, I think, and say there's been a change, that it's a he or a she who's had this experience, not an I. The million-dollar question, then, maybe the toughest one, I mean, and it's tied in with the outside what is it that's coming in? And then what is it that's really writing the poem? What's coming in is, a, is as it were, a, a property or a quality of disruption. There's breaking up all unity, which Blanchot, I think, would say, he doesn't quite say this, he would say this is one with being itself. So, that's what's coming in. Namely, it's the writer, interestingly enough, who has a kind of contact with the truth about being. This is really interesting because we normally think of the philosopher as the one who has a relationship, or the theologian, if you like, who has a particular relationship with, with being. But for him, writing almost bypasses that. Not quite, but almost. Um, so... That that's what comes in. It, mm. What comes in is disruption. But this isn't this isn't some you know because um, I think about when you when you talk about the idea of right, you grab a pen and just remain passive. Mm -hmm. You know this this could be conflated with the surrealist automatic writing, but it isn't. It right. isn't. It doesn't seem to be that at all. Now, he was very interested in the surrealists, of course, as you could imagine that there's a proximity there. Um, you have to start the activity of writing. There is a jump into the into the world. So it's not entirely passive. Mm. It'd be nice if poetry and novels could be written to you by just by sitting in front of the laptop. But I'm, I'm afraid you have to put your fingers on the keys and start. But the movement um, of, uh, of uh, deflection occurs almost immediately, according to Blanchot. 
Mm. I, I mean, I mean, I know I wrote out all these other questions for you, so I do apologize. But I'm interested mm, in what right. you said about uh, writing being connected to being, and him not being a philosopher, not being a theologian. Where theologian, we go into once again Anselm's ontological argument, and we would understand the greatest, greatest possible being argument. Or right. the philosopher, we would go into, uh, you know, a highly technical understanding of what uh, of ontology. Does he give glimpses into what his perhaps his his ontology, his cosmology is in terms which we might be able to work with theoretically speaking? Okay. One thing to keep in mind about Blanchot is that he was never a professor. He never taught anywhere. Uh, he made his living very precariously by reading manuscripts for the French publisher Gallimard and by writing pieces himself in literary uh, reviews. He read a lot of philosophy. Uh, Jacques Derrida used to say that he had the greatest philosophical culture of anyone he knew, which is quite something coming mm. from Derrida. Um, so there's never any sense of a system or a treatise at the back of his works. He often rewrote essays to make them um, uh cohere in some way, cohere in a, with a kind of lack of coherence in some of his books. But there was no treatise behind the whole thing. Um, so we, we just can't find any anything like a, a system mm. in, in that sense, or even a counter system. That makes sense. <laughs> is, this, is this, as, a, as something else has taken over, you've exercised the eye and you're trying to enter into that duty of the poet to be passive, to allow the eye to dissipate. Is this amoral? Okay, that's interesting. He doesn't want us to think that we're bound to any particular code of ethics. He was a man of the left. I don't think he ever joined the French Communist Party, for instance, but he was sympathetic to the kind of eruption that occurred in 1968 in May 1968, which you could see with that um, uh, disorder in, in French culture at the time was something he would be sympathetic uh, to. Um, he does become very interested in ethics, however, after the publication of Emmanuel Levinas's Totality and Infinity, 1961. And he writes about that in his book, L'Entretien Infini, uh, The Infinite Conversation. But he he doesn't buy into what Levinas says about ethics. Mm -hmm. Levinas says, as, as is common knowledge these days, that we owe everything to the other person. Mm -hmm. So when I'm talking with you at the moment, you are, as it were, above me, and your voice is one of command. <laughs> and I respond to that. Blanco doesn't like this at all, since he thinks, maybe with reason, that this is one of his one of the ways in which Levinas tries to smuggle God into the picture. That God is behind Levinas, as it were. Mm. So I'm actually responding to God. And he says rather, it's not an asymmetry that determines ethics, but a double dissymmetry. That's to say, I am talking to you as metaphysically above me, but you are talking to me as metaphysically above you. So there's a dissymmetry there. And he takes this from the mathematician Riemann, and it's an example of what he calls Riemannian space. And he became very interested in cosmology, mm -hmm. uh, that the shape of the universe is not that of a perfect sphere, as used to be believed, but rather 
is in a strange mathematical shapes. It may not may not it's a pluriverse, not a universe, that we can't hold the whole thing together. And I think he would have been more and more interested had he grown uh, even older and seen what's been happening with uh, adventures in theoretical physics hmm. to see all of the stuff about multi-dimensions hmm. in the cosmos and that the, the cosmos is really so much more varied and cannot be harmonized at all. That That's the kind of thing that, which would have interested him. Okay. It's interesting you mentioned the like sort of the May sixty eight. You 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 said it was disorder, which I think is a a a key word because I just noted down it's disorder, but it's not chaos. Right, right. You see what I mean? So yeah. I, you know, Blanco. So far, you'd think that all this fragmentation, all this you know, all these centers and selves are dissipated. This is just turning into a huge sort of riot, ontological riot or something. But it's not. It's not chaos. It's certainly not chaos. It's not Dada at all. <laughs> and it, it doesn't go in that side of surrealism either. Um, his essays, even though they are um, dense and even though they are um, sometimes difficult to follow because of the um, originality of his ideas, are always coherent. Um, also, his uh, stories, his récits and novels are also coherent at one level, you start to read them. And then after a paragraph or two, you think that you're moving away from reality as you know it. You're being drawn into some other world which is challenging the deep assumptions of our own world. So he's much more subtle than the Dada people and even a lot of the surrealists. How is it the narrative then? To move to the other sort of cornerstone yeah. of your of your book, how is it the narrative from what we've said so far can even with poetry can understand that poetry is this this with this connection to experience can be be more more fragmented, different styles, different forms, but narrative how can that appear amidst amidst this uh, uncertainty? Okay, yes. Well, one thing's for sure: he doesn't like. Um, the kind of novel which is pushed at us that when we're traveling on airplanes, we go into a bookshop and buy, um, which has got a, a complete harmony of plot and character and theme, mm. everything neatly rolled up. The kinds of novels that he likes are often either very short or very, very long. Like he was a great admirer, an early admirer of the Mahi de Sade, whose writings I find completely unreadable. But one of the things he liked about them is that the Marquis de Sade, like all great narrative writers, he thinks, has the ability um, to say everything. It's a, a French, the French expression is tout dire, to say everything. Now, that means at least a couple of things. The Marquis de Sade, as we know, um, said all the things which were completely forbidden mm -hmm. in his time. So he's saying everything. He's breaking all laws. Um, but he's also talking obsessively about the same thing time and again uh, with noticing minute variations and nuances of the kind of awful things that he, he discusses. Now, later on, when he goes on to other writers he admires, he sees the same sort of thing going on uh, in um, in uh, uh, Brock, for example, uh, in the, the death of Virgil, 
he's, he notices how uh, Brock tries to say absolutely everything about um, about the death of Virgil. When he's writing about the confessions of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, he's highly attentive to the fact that Rousseau tries to confess absolutely everything that he does. He won't let anything go by without bringing it into the light. And so that's one of the ways in which the outside comes to disrupt our normal experience of the novel. But we can never be complete in in confessing or describing everything. Well, no. There would always be some continuation. Right. But there is a kind of literature, one which the French in, in especially seem to like, um, like the the great French uh, poet uh, Francis Ponge. Ponge has got a 60-page poem called The Glass of Water, which is a minute description of a glass of water over, over I think it's about 60 days. And the uh, earlier in the century, Raymond Roussel has a long poem called La Vue, the view, which is um, a description of a little scene painted on a penholder. Mm. And it goes, it's as long as In Memoriam, I think, by Alfred Lord Tennyson. And it's just a minute description of this tiny little beach scene, which has been painted on a penholder on someone's desk. So that they're examples also of saying everything, of pushing a certain kind of literature to its absolute limit. Mm. I mean, you mentioned the Marquis de Sade, and, and I'm in agreement with you, uh, not just for the content, but I don't find him massively right. great to read. Right. But one, I think it's a it's an interesting example of this idea of actually saying everything without going into the content of his work, but it's most most famous, 120 days. What's interesting about that is that by the end, we're, he couldn't finish it, and we're left with just these sort of one-sentence things of things that he would have got would have yes. written if he could and finished them up but when you get to that once you've gone through all this sort of grotesque constant detailing of the worst of the worst and then he's like well this is this is just a quick one-line description of the things i wanted to write this notion of detailing everything begins to fall apart it begins to seem a little absurd almost that right that's how i found it but i don't know so does this sort of begin to, do, you, do you feel that this this form of narrative of of it almost feels like a human breakdown of trying to detail every facet okay. of reality yeah i mean uh, to give it a positive spin for mm. blanchot what he finds interesting in the narratives is their power of fascination mm -hmm. um the, the fascination with these details and with fragmentation as it occurs but of course, we're always going to ask the question, sure, you can say everything if you wish, but there comes to be a limit where it doesn't become interesting anymore. Uh, there's a, the, the, the novelist Georges Perec has an interesting little book in which he tries to exhaust everything that's going on in one afternoon in the, the part of Paris where Saint-Supplice is. And he talks about buses coming and people at cafes, and he details absolutely everything in an attempt to say everything about that tiny little bit of Paris on one afternoon. The idea becomes very interesting, but as you're reading it, you have to give him a lot of, you have to nod to him to the idea all the time because the writing itself isn't isn't carrying the day. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> 
And I think, uh, so just to, just to mirror the writing, there's this interesting quote uh, from yourself where you say, one might revise Levinas's remark to say that Blanchot's mode of reading is anterior to all critique and all exegesis. So not only on the writing do we have this yeah. form of fragmentation, but on his form of re- how did he how did he read in that in that form? I mean, that seems very Derridian, which would make sense. But this right. form of reading then seems to mirror and inform the, how he writes. That's interesting. And Derrida was a great admirer of Blanchot, and it went the other way as well. So they are very close. Um, okay, reading he thought was always a light and innocent affair. Um, which is interesting. We don't always experience it that way, I I suspect, and certainly not when reading Blanchot. Um, Writing, he thought, always involved anguish, Mm. because as soon as you write, you start to lose yourself. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he doesn't have any sense of a recuperation of gaining a higher self or a transcendence or anything like that. So uh, reading, what happens when we read is that we're also brought into contact with absence. Because obviously the things, but what we're reading on the page isn't present to us. We can represent it to ourselves. But often what happens is that we get a strange kind of absence there. For example, if if we're talking now, um, if, I'm, if I recite a poem by, say, Robert Frost, mm. whose woods these are, I think I know, his house is in the village, though. A poem most American school children know, stopping by woods on a snowy evening. But as we hear those words, woods, well, what do we hear? Well, we don't get any of the sensuous presence of a wood in New Hampshire. We don't get the smell of the tree. We don't get the feel of the tree or anything like that. What we get is a mode of being that's been stripped of all that sensuous being. So language is giving us something in which being itself appears to suffer being denuded. And that's what interests him in reading. It seems like language is almost committing a violence to being then. Right. That's right. Something like that. So why do we, why why do we, why do we, why do we often opt for language then? You know, this is one of the most tragic. This is one of the most troubling aspects about (laughs) Blanchot. Maybe it's one of the most troubling aspects about sheer originality because it deviates so much from our common experience of life. Um, At one stage, he says that when we write, that we enter this nil and limitless place of suffocation where being ceaselessly turns into nothingness. And you think, oh, you know, why then would we write? Well, the, the answer would be because that's the way things are, he would say. That is the <laughs> nature of reality. It's very grim. Um, he certainly doesn't sugarcoat reality for us. And when we're reading, we're led from what seems apparently secure and well thought out through a kind of fascination with the way in which being passes into image, that's to say into non-being. So when you're sitting on a Saturday afternoon reading a novel and you can't bring yourself to put it down, most of us would say, oh, that's because we're excited by the characters and we want to find out what happens. 
But for Blanchot, that, that, that's not the real reason. While we're caught in the narrative, especially some narratives, the ones he particularly likes, is because we're fascinated by this movement of passing from being to the non-being of image. And that won't let us go. When we're in a state of fascination, we can't be, we can't leave. It's very interesting that the tradition, the Western tradition, primarily talks about contemplation, mm. which is freedom. One is free to contemplate something. One is enriched by contemplating God or nature. And one is um, uh, one transcends oneself. One loses oneself. There's a whole complicated tradition of this. But Blanchot never talks about that. He talks rather of something close to it and very distant from it, namely fascination. And in a state of fascination, we're claimed by what we're reading, and it won't release us. We're not in the past or the future at that point in time. No, we're almost outside time. Mm. The, experience, the experience of the outside leads us away from time. Time's arrow, he says, just begins to spin. Does it sort of nomadically come back at points, or do you think it just sort of keeps spinning? Um, for him, I think he'd say it keeps spinning. It, and the an analogy he gives, which is characteristic of him, since his writing is very grim, it's like in when we're sick. Mm -hmm. If you've got a very bad flu mm -hmm. and you're in bed, time just seems to spin. It doesn't go straight ahead. You just can't seem to get back into the normal flow of time and he thinks is very similar when we're reading see this is this is how i felt reading thomas the obscure because yes when you what's so interesting about that book is you know i thought to myself where does it begin it begins where so many other books end or have a climax which is the stereotypical symbol of the the human being being washed in the in the in the waters that would often be seen as truth or um, the erasure of the self. So, where this book begins is this: the the self being basically destroyed in a way, and then we begin, and it retains that throughout throughout the novel. This continual uh, usurping of various various tropes. The tropes tropes don't even really get get a look in. Just saying a lot. Right. It is an extraordinary work. <laughs> it, it exists. Uh, uh, so far as we know at the moment, in three versions. An early version, which just came out in French uh, last year, um, called uh, Thomas le Solitaire. And then he rewrote it as the novel, which hasn't ever been translated into English. And then probably what you've been reading is what's called the Récit version, which is the stripped-down version, which I find very beautiful and very disturbing. Mm. What are your thoughts on? Why do you find it so disturbing? Well, because he, he the main character of the novel, uh, Thomas, um, Thomas means in, in Greek, uh, double. But it also has a, a kind of false etymology, which has been important throughout the Middle Ages and later, where it means abyss. Um, and that's because of a, people mishearing a word in Hebrew. Um, so Thomas, who he takes to be, I, I, I take it like all of us, is a double. But 
there's a, there's a whole interesting literature, especially from the late 18th century through to the 20th century, on the double. Dostoevsky is a great instance of this. But he's not thinking of that. Rather, he's thinking that in Thomas, this everyman character, there's a twofold existence. One of one side of him is living and dying, and in fact, in a sense, already dead. Uh, there's another sense which is Thomas is obscure, and that is the impossible or neutral Thomas. And so within each one of us, there is this obscure, neutral version of ourselves, which the living person is merely the host of. It does once again, it almost seems like a negative version of the divine spark. Absolutely right. Yes. Um, he was very interested in Gnosticism, uh, especially in Sim Simone Weil, who herself was strongly attracted to aspects of it. So, But he thinks that the Gnostics got it slightly wrong. Mm -hmm. The Gnostics think that creation was made by the Demiurge, which is why uh, there's so much evil, natural evil in the world, why we're so flawed. But the God who is super transcendent at the moment of the Demiurge's creation, put a pneuma or spark into each of us, which is uncreated. Mm. So when we look deep into ourselves for the Gnostics, we find something uncreated. And when we latch onto that, there is an illumination, mm. a regeneration. And we go back, in a sense, to the transcendent deity. So that's Gnosticism. We don't need faith for that because we can know it. Once you make, Once you encounter that spark within you, you know it. Um, this has had various versions in modernity. A really interesting one is Howard Bloom's version of it, where Howard Bloom says that the pneuma is our imagination. And the writer, especially the poet, is the one who makes contact with an authentic, strong imagination, which has not been determined by the culture and manages to break out of the culture and write a strong work, Shakespeare being the greatest example of this, but almost everyone else as well to a limited extent. Now, Blanchot doesn't think there's a super transcendent God, but he thinks the Gnostics were really trying to describe the outside. And it's that which um, is, is deep down inside us, the outside or the neutral or the impossible. So when we make contact with that outside, that impossible um, version of ourselves within it, that's when there's a moment of illumination. Mm. And we see that all of our culture, which is telling us about power and about control and about unity and about the work and the self, the subject, the book, and all of that, all of that is mistaken. So it's a little bit like the kind of moment of enlightenment that some Zen Buddhists talk about. So in a way, the way in which Blanchot doesn't become a nihilist, isn't falling into nihilism, is in the hands of something else. Well, he'd, he'd have a nuanced answer to that, I think. he, I think he would say he wanted to be a nihilist. Um, but nihilism is a very difficult thing to be able to state clearly. Um, and he has a long essay on nihilism in his book, The Infinite Conversation, where he he, he talks about that we're, we're, we're trying to follow it, 
but we can't quite claim it. Mm. Uh, he always has difficulty in claiming something or avowing something, because that seems to presume a coherent I, which is doing the work of a vowel. So in a sense, there's something crazy about saying, I am an atheist, or I am a nihilist, because that, he thinks, presumes a substantive I, which has power and control over the ideas, affirming nihilism or atheism. But if he thinks that that substantive I is radically thrown into question by the outside or the neutral, then you can't do that. So it becomes a very difficult thing actually to say the idea. So if you want to be a nihilist, you can't be a nihilist. You sort of it's a passive right, right. I mean, it it always evades us. Mm. Would you just would you describe him as a nihilist? Someone who would like to have been a nihilist, yeah. Mm. <laughs> How did he describe himself, a failed nihilist? Um, he says uh, in a couple of places, of ourselves, we remain silent. Um, one of the intriguing things about Blanchot, uh, I already mentioned that he never held a position in a university. He never accepted a prize that I can think of, never appeared in public on a stage, uh, was never on apostrophe, uh, that French program where French intellectuals like to parade themselves. He always lived as a private person without drawing attention to himself. So there was never any sense of him being a media personality or anything like that. There was no known photograph of him for a very large number of years, not until Levinas published um, a little book about his own thought, which included a photograph of him and Blanchot as university students together. Did anyone have the faintest idea what Blanchot looked like, apart from his close friends? And then later, the French journal Lier got fed up with this, and they sent a man, a photographer, to hide in the bushes. And so when Blanchot and his sister-in-law were going shopping one day, going to the supermarket, going to Cafour or somewhere, he was hiding in the bushes and took a photograph. So we got in his old age a photograph of him um, with a with a shopping trolley, which is quite amusing, really. People were outraged that this had been done to Blanchot. Only after he's died have lots of photographs come to light, and they're all on the internet. Yeah. Mm. There's a very, it's interesting. So many of them are extremely uh, gaunt and severe and ghost-like, and yet there's one that stands out, which is one of the few in colour, which is him holding this big cat and looking very happy. Yes. And uh, it yeah. really stands out amongst them all. Of this, uh, it shows a uh, shows a real warmth within him, which doesn't always come across in his work. Understandably, you, you're right. I mean, he there seems to be a disparity between his writing, which is sometimes very chilly and almost gothic, mm -hmm. uh, frightening, and you get this idea of an author who's perpetually sick and sad and so forth. But then you listen to the testimony of people who actually knew him. And the testimony is always of someone who was very kind, very gentle, very warm, highly solicitous of his friends. And now more stories are coming out in photographs that he was um, he was a friend, for example, it seems, of Brigitte Bardot, mm -hmm. which is, you can't imagine going to the movies with, with Blanchot, but he was a great moviegoer. 
it seems. And uh, women found him inescapably attractive. Was he charismatic? So very evidently so, yes. This is interesting. It reminds me of a story of um, J.G. Ballard, actually. So Ballard writing all of these fairly often horrifying, gory and, you know, uh, industrially uh, striking books. And you'd think, who is this strange man? And there's a story of someone going to, to meet him and then suddenly coming across this very polite middle class man in a country retreat. And this reminds me of the same thing of Blanchot possibly sitting at his desk, grabbing the pen, and then he enters into that silence, which is really where something else begins to get defined or non -de or not defined. <laughs> yes, he, he does distinguish. He was also a journalist for a good deal of his life to make ends meet. <laughs> so he, he used to distinguish between his daytime writing, which was political journalism, and where he started out on the far right of French politics and moved very far to the left. So he said, that was my daytime writing. And daytime writing has to be meaningful. It's got to work for change and progress. But he said, but at night, I would write my stories and narrative work, my novels like Thomas, Thomas the Obscure. And he said, and that's where you get a different kind of writing, which is intransitive. Journalism has to be transitive. It has to generate meaning. It has to generate ideas because there is political work to be done. And as a man of the left, he thought there was very important political work to be done. But that becomes problematized in his own fictional writing. Yeah, I was going to, I was going to ask, do, does the night writing ever invade into the day writing at any point? Is there any sort of political tracts which are more Blanchotian? In his novel, um, in English, The Most High, uh, there's, there's a clear political background about totalitarianism, mm. um, which a, a kind of totalitarian version of French society, which is being subverted by a kind of plague. Um, so it, it appears there, most of his, it's, it's impossible really to summarize Blanchot's récit. They're, they're just too, um, too involved. But one thing that you can say about them is that they're brimful of passion, of human passion. Uh, death Sentence, for example, is an extremely moving, passionate story, um, highly erotic. And so you find this um, erotic without being pornographic. So he's not, he's not like Georges Bataille, his friend. Um, very drawn to male-female relationships and what goes on in them. Is there something more going on in them for Blanchot that's important in terms of his 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 worldview or his, his, his absence, his worldview of absence and the neutral? Yes, I mean, every page he writes is about death and dying. Mm. Uh, so there's a strong sense of, of loss that's going on, a, a loud complaint which is continual about the life simply um, vanishes. And he tries to talk about this in his récit and in his critical writing, that um, we mustn't think of death as a negation. We must try our best to think of it as a lightness. When he was a, a young man during the French uh, resistance, working for the French resistance, uh, 
the, the Vlasov army found him and put him up against the wall and were about to shoot him. And he talks in a story called The Moment of My Death about the very moment when he thought he was just about to be killed and he experienced a kind of lightness. Mm. It wasn't beatitude, it wasn't happiness, but that the thought of death came to him as death as a friend, not as an enemy. And he, he tried to keep that going, I think, throughout his long life. Did he believe that he was going to be going anywhere? I don't mean the traditional heaven and hell. When, but... when you die, you're dead for, for, for Blorso. There's, there's nowhere to go to. And yet death is a friend. And yet death is a friend um, because that's, that, that's all we have. We have our investment in life and we live life as, as well as we can. But we shouldn't shake death away or or, 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 um, or find ourselves um, hiding mm. from it. When death approaches, you accept death coming as a friend, which is going to take you away, but not to any particular place. It's, it really is so interesting and fascinating to compare it to, uh, I guess, traditional theology, because this notion of, you know, the soul holding our soul, which is already within eternity, already in a way, or in a way, one foot already in the afterlife. It's of the infinite, yeah. it's of the eternal, and the body yes. is this degrading vessel. And death, in that sense, is already there. You just need to. What are you going to do? Um, he has found a way to sort of approach that in a secular manner, right? While also not giving up on the sacred. It, I mean, he's a mm. very consequent atheist. You can't find God affirmed in any way <laughs> however he thinks that there is a kind of notion of the sacred that we do draw from and he, and he says there can never be any poetry if there's no sense of the sacred and the sacred he thinks has been misidentified as coming from the divine that in fact it comes from the outside so he, it's a very radical um, displacement of Christianity mm. much more sympathetic to Judaism in part through his friend Levinas. And I think there are signs from time to time that he was very interested in Buddhism. I should say, I mean, it's interesting. Recently recorded an episode on the Norwegian philosopher Peter Vessel Zapfa, whose work has been described as Buddhism without Nirvana. And I think that would probably fit <laughs> with Blanchot as well. Yeah, that, that's that's not bad. I mean, Buddhists have got a different idea of nirvana, whether it's a place or a kind of state, um, whether there's anything there at all, um, whether it's just a moment of enlightenment. But Blanchot, if you if you put aside the idea that nirvana was some kind of paradise, mm. I think you would agree. Mm. And yet, it's so odd, because we've mentioned all these terms, gothic, death, um, in a way, suffering, death is ever present and yet not once uh reading all that i have of blanchot did i feel it was miserable did i feel that it was whining or, or no. you know schopenhauerian right whinging you know there's uh, there isn't misery it's potent it's potent stuff you are quite right i think i mean there's no schopenhauerian um sense of uh, pessimism that mm. runs through him he is socially um socially an optimist he he does believe that there is that there is hope in the communist exigency um, he may have had to revise his views 
more recently had he gone through what we've been having to go through recently. But he, he, he was concerned that there was something in communism which gave people hope. And there's no whining. That's true. In fact, he does have a sense of humor, although it's a very dark sense of humor. I can think of one passage in Death Sentence where in English he's talking about um, the sister of the main character, one of the main characters, Jay. And he says something like, she liked to live, she said, off the kindness of gentlemen. And then the narrator says, I assume she's dead. <laughs> That's what his sense of humor is like. Is there anything you'd like to add about your, your book or poetry and narrative that you feel we haven't touched upon that is key? I don't know. We've, one thing about Blanchot is that he's a hedgehog. He's not a fox. You know that old distinction that uh, the world is divided between hedgehogs and foxes. So the, the hedgehog has one big idea. And the fox has many little ideas, as the Greek poet says. Um, so obviously, uh, Plato is a hedgehog. Uh, Hegel is a hedgehog. Shakespeare is a fox. Mm. Tolstoy is a fox. Dostoevsky is a hedgehog. Blanchot is a hedgehog. He's got his set of ideas about the outside, the neutral fascination, which he deploys in a very foxy way throughout many different texts. So one one interesting thing for, for people who want to start to get to know Blanchot a bit better is in a sense it doesn't matter where you start <laughs> because you're going to find one or another version of the same ideas, either in a more or less elaborated mode. And you'll find yourself at a sort of beginning, middle and end all at once in most places as well. That's why it takes a little bit of time to, to understand what's going on. Um, certainly the essays are very approachable, much more approachable than the novels and récits. Um, and even, even they have challenges. But a good way to start reading Blanchot is to think of one's favorite author and see if Blanchot has written something on him or her and then read that essay. And that will give you a good introduction to him. The most difficult way, the most challenging way, and the most beautiful way in some, some uh, senses is to launch yourself into the narratives, mm -hmm. into death sentence, the madness of the day, um, the instant of my death, and various others, that they're very, very moving. They're very powerful. But you'll find yourself moved quickly to a very strange place. Mm. I feel we've we've touched on a lot, and we've touched on yes. the major parts of your books uh, of your book. Uh, so Maurice Blanchot and Poetry and Narrative Ethics of the Image. Um, it's available. I believe it's available now um so it's I, available now i will put the links in the description below but kevin hart but, um yeah once again it's been a fantastic discussion thanks very much wonderful thank you so much